This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. This is Nate Black for Software Engineering Radio. I'm joined today by Peter Zaitsev. Peter is the CEO of Percona, a company with deep expertise in open source databases. Peter was an early employee at MySQL AB, eventually leading the company's high performance group. He co-founded Percona and assumed the role of CEO in 2006. Peter is co-author of High Performance MySQL, Optimization, Backups, and Replication. Peter, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Thank you. Peter, there are so many databases out there and more being created all the time. So in this episode, we wanted to cover first, how many databases do you need in a new application? And second, how to go about choosing. So could you please tell us why choosing an open source database is a difficult problem? Yeah, well, uh, first I would say it's not about the open source database. It is about open source databases, right? If there may be uh, more than one uh, for uh, for your application. I think uh, we had uh, this kind of an interesting pivot uh, recently where we had the scene kind of a lot of consolidation where you would uh, get uh, the, you know, you know, decade ago, for example, uh, if you would look into some very small number of uh, leading, uh, uh, leading databases, right? You would look at either Oracle or uh, MySQL when it comes to the open source databases, right? Uh, and uh, now the trend has been changing where we have a lot of uh, uh, databases which are uh, really purpose-built, uh, right? And so you may well need more than one database to choose uh, to use in your application. Yeah, we had a few episodes that referenced this uh, development. One was Michael Stonebreaker talking about VaultDB, and he referenced a paper he wrote in 2006 called uh, the, Era of, the Era of One-Size Databases is Over or the era of one-size-fits-all databases is, is over. Yes, that's right. And since then, we've also covered multi-model databases and polyglot persistence. Mm-hmm. Is, what you're, is what you're talking about related to those topics? Uh, yes, yeah. I think if there are multiple uh, trends uh, which, are, which are going on uh, right now, right? So and uh, let me maybe talk a little bit about that. So from one standpoint, one of the general software engineering trend, right, or at least one of the patterns we see is the microservices. And what is interesting about, about microservices is that makes services often, in many cases, own the data and provide the external API on uh, access to that, right? And different microservices may choose the different database technologies which are best suited for their needs. Right, so for example, your microservice, microservice responsible for search may uh, use uh, Elastic, while your microservice is responsible for your order tracking and delivery. Right, may use some traditional the relational database such as MySQL. Right, uh, that is one trend. Another interesting trend is, of course, the rise of the cloud. Where in the past it was uh, really hard 
to scale the number of databases because you would need so much experience in-house to uh, operate and manage those. Now with Rise of the Clouds and database as a service pattern, then it makes it very easy for developers to spin up uh, in the cloud their database instances right, uh, they, they want. And uh, there is very little friction for you using both MySQL, MongoDB, Elastic, and Redis all in the same application. Is this just due to it being easier to provision the hardware, or in this case, virtual hardware, or are there other trends that are causing the cost of operations to go down? No, no, it's not just about their uh, the hardware. And I think the hardware itself is uh, is really minimal here, right? The, when uh, we saw the shift from, well, let's say, your kind of conventional data center to the cloud, right? And you, you have a services as Amazon EC2 and EBS came out, right? It was relatively easy to automate deployment of your your hardware uh, and services at those days, right? But uh, uh, the databases are particular kind of technologies, right? They are uh, very important for your uh, applications. If they die badly, they lose all your data, right? And if you don't have your data, well, chances are you don't have your business, right? So they're not, uh, you cannot have like such a relaxed uh, approach, right, to make it, to managing the database as you may uh, with your uh, with your web service, right? Which you know, if you if it dies, probably nothing happens, right? Our web services, the web service can take over, right? So a uh, real change here happened when the database as a service technology, such as uh, the Amazon RDS or Aurora, right, or even uh, more proprietary technologies as uh, DynamoDB became available. Right, because those technologies, they kind of manage themselves in a sense of if you get this kind of service, it provides you high viability, right? It takes care of your backups, at least in some way, and so on and so forth, right? So as an engineer, as developer, you don't uh, really need to take care of all that messy operations you would still need to do if you uh, just deploy your database on the EC2 environment, right, on your own. This question was originally, I, I was thinking about uh, the risk of lock-in to a particular database technology, but that seems to potentially extend to these database-as-a-service situations. Is lock-in a big risk? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, of course it is. No, of course uh, it, is, uh, it is a big, uh, big risk with, with lock-in, right? And uh, this is why, uh, from my standpoint, if you are choosing the, the databases, everything being equal, you are better off to choose the open source database, right? Or a set of open source uh, uh, databases. Of course, uh, cloud, uh, cloud vendors make it very seductive to get on their uh, database as a service uh, offering because they promise so much, uh, so much simplicity, ease of use, and so on and so forth, which does, uh, of course, come with a, a huge uh, vendor lock-in. Because a lot of those services are designed to be like a, uh, as a famous Hotel California, right? Where it's very easy to check in, but it's very hard to check out. All of them, of course, promise compatibility with open source database systems, but this is a one-way compatibility. Uh, Amazon makes it very easy for you to move to from from MySQL to Amazon Aurora with MySQL compatibility, but they also make it uh, much harder to 
move out, right, uh, or wherever that is due to the scalability, right, or wherever some other additional features which uh, they hope you would rely on, right? So, so yes, uh, I would say that uh, vendor locking is a concern. I'd like to come back to that later when we talk about different open source licenses. I think this is in a way related, but first I want to cover the rest of the roadmap, or I guess these are more high level questions. What's the situation where the choice of the database is really important and we need to care about it a lot versus situations where it's, it doesn't matter. Well, uh, I think there are multiple angles uh, to that. Uh, right, and uh, if you look at the uh, choices where databases uh, is more important, of course, we are uh, speaking about the applications which are more complicated, which are uh, more uh, mission critical, uh, which are large scale. So, for example, the efficiency the, in this case becomes very, very important. But I think it's also uh, important, just in a different way, when you are starting. To, to build your application and it's kind of small and easy. It just goes through the uh, different thought process, right? So for example, if you are developer and you are just trying to build some small application, what database you should choose? Well, chances are that is a database you already know and that is a database you can uh, you know build that, uh, uh, that application with, right? Which would be very different from the choice some uh, uh, Fortune 500 enterprise is doing or making commitment right for the next decade right to roll out for a whole enterprise. Okay, so it comes down to expertise and what you know. I think that you're echoing what was what was said in the uh, polyglot persistence uh, episode, which is essentially go first with your expertise or what you're comfortable with, and then have some kind of migration path forward. Well, I would say uh, this is right, right? You want to uh, to choose what you are comfortable with, right? Hopefully, as an engineer, you have experience so you understand where you are trying to fit their, what is called like a square peg in a round hole, right? Because uh, nothing good, <laughs> good is, coming, is going to come out uh, from that, right? Uh, uh, less... Uh, Hmm, uh, less mature, less experienced engineering, they have, they sometimes they don't have that and they may have huge surprises, then uh, they run into some problems with the database. For example, using MySQL uh, as a database and you start with an application, then you need to have some reporting functionality and then, bam, surprise, MySQL doesn't really run the analytical queries very fast. Somebody who has experience, deep experience, right, or even medium-level experience of MySQL would know that. Somebody who doesn't, uh, that they won't, and they may uh, actually think it would be great if I would know about that in advance, so I would have designed my system different. Great. That leads to the next section where I wanted to talk about the application data and storage model of your application. So. When we did the show on multi-model databases, we talked about finding the data model that fits your usage pattern. And that episode actually talked a lot in detail about different data models and their suitability for various features. Could you talk a little bit about that to 
give listeners an idea about some specific open source databases and how they map to data models or use cases that fit really well with the 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 way that that uh, data model or storage model operates. Yes. So uh, sure, sure. I think when you look about a data model, there are kind of two uh, different layers here, right? You may be, may want to think about. One is what your logical uh, model, uh, right? That is how you developer operates operate the data. The other is more of a physical model. That's how a database engine stores that. And uh, that uh, can be uh, important because uh, uh, what is going to be able to do fast and what's not will depend on that. So if you look at the, uh, at the, uh, at the logical uh, model, uh, some of the most uh, popular uh, uh, models uh, right now would be either uh, your relational database model, right, such as uh, when you have uh, SQL databases, they follow uh, that model. And uh, the great thing about this model, it's, it's very expressive. Like uh, literally all kind of applications has been built on, uh, uh, on that model. Right, but at the same time, that requires a lot of thought and design in advance. The other model, which has been uh, raising uh, more uh, more recently, is the document model. In which case, you do not have to do such an extensive database design as a relational model. Often, your queries can be uh, more complicated and easier to understand. It's also often kind of more. I would say more similar to how you present the data in the modern applications, right? So, for example, if you if you are front-end developers, your chances are using uh, JavaScript and uh, and have been working with the JSON data a lot, right? The J data structured as a JSON objects. Guess what? You can get those uh, objects pushed uh, directly into the document store database, not so much into into relational databases, and you can have a the queries, convenient queries on them, right, in a document storage base. The third one, which I think is very uh, popular, uh, is also a very simple key value uh, databases, right? That is also very uh, simple to understand, and they have been uh, used for years for things like, uh, uh, you know, caching and similar simple applications. Now, this is, of course, not an extensive list, right? You have also there the, the, uh, the graph databases, uh, right and other data structures. Right, for example, a very popular database called Redis. It uh, offers you something like, you know, maybe ten or more different data structures which you can uh, use for uh, different different data models. So that is what I would say from the front end or your logical data structure. Now, if you look at the more uh, physical concepts, right, then uh, in this case you have, I think, a couple of interesting dimension which is happening so far. One is your database, which is primarily designed for a data store on disk, right? Another, there are also in-memory databases, right? And in-memory databases can often uh, do some special optimization on the data access patterns when you can serve the data really, really fast. But then obviously amount of data you can store in memory is limited, right? Now, the other difference you would see uh, for relational databases, you also have things like uh, row store versus column store, right? And this typically seen as wherever this database engine is designed for uh, your analytical applications, right? Uh, running some, you know, 
complicated queries which crunch uh, through uh, millions, billions, right, even trillions of rows versus your more online transactional applications, which typically run simple queries, which, uh, you know, so scan or modify maybe hundreds, uh, you know, thousands of rows, right? They have a different, you know, physical storage structures, uh, right, which are designed for those two different use cases. In order to get started in choosing a database or databases, then I would have to have some kind of idea about the what you call the logical model and what kind of logical model was appropriate for my application and then i would have to know what what's the set of open source databases that that's in that space so can you, you walk through a little bit the decision process or how how could i inform myself better about that decision well uh, one thing i would uh... Uh, I would uh, suggest uh, uh, first, right, is uh, especially when it comes to open source, it is uh, better to travel the road well traveled, uh, traveled, right, or uh, use the popular open source database technologies, right, because that is where there is a lot of experiences. You will find books, you'll find forums, you'll find local user group support, right, and if you stuck, it is very easy to uh, to get help. Right, so from my standpoint, you can go ahead and look at a number of lists of the top open source database technologies. Right, you can use you know DB engines, for example, is a very popular kind of this benchmark of popularity of different open source database, uh, not just open source, all databases. You can also look at something like Stack Overflow Developer Survey. They also talk uh, well about what databases are popular among different uh, among developers, right? Which I think is a great way to understand where the traction is and where the world is, uh, is going, right? And uh, in uh, my opinion, you want to stick to the top 10 database technologies unless you really, really need something, something different. You have a very strong reason to go with that new and exotic database technology, which will just give you that 10x advantage, right? So uh, that is, I think, a most uh, uh, important uh, choice out there. Now, and if you set that as a baseline, then there are not as many kind of really choices out there, right? Because if you think about the, uh, let's say, document store, well, there is a MongoDB, which is by far the largest. There is uh, also a Couchbase uh, coming up, or you can also use Doc Store functionality provided by MySQL Doc Store, right? Or uh, use JSON Store in uh, in Postgres, right? Which is a little bit less convenient, but you can still use that, right? Relational databases. You have uh, MySQL and Postgres. These are, you know, by far the most popular kind of traditional transactional open source uh, open source database, right? So, yeah, uh, the, I think that's how it goes. Does Cassandra also fit into that list? Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. C Cassandra is uh, obviously also uh, in that list, right? But I, I think Cassandra is interesting, right? Because when people think about Cassandra, they I don't think you think about that as a technology which has the easiest to use the developer interface. But it, uh, it's uh, really, at the same time, very well designed for the large-scale, multiple data center application, right? If you want to build an application where uh, the whole world is your playground, then uh, Cassandra is one of the technologies you should uh, surely look at. 
perhaps I could say, you know, I, as an ambitious developer, I want the world to be my playground. So why shouldn't I then just always choose Cassandra? Uh, well, uh, you know what? Because there is no free lunch, right? That, that is, I think, is a very interesting observation from, from my side, right? I mean, if you look at uh, any technology company out there, right? Uh, obviously, they promote their technology, right? And they mm, uh, want to explain us, uh, you know, why it makes sense and points uh, and focus the discussion point to things where it has advantages, right? But at the same time, uh, you know, when you make decisions, it's always kind of benefits and drawbacks, uh, right? In this case, there is no absolute silver bullet engineering and the SAMHSA solution just has it all, right? I mean, uh, and I, I think that is, if, uh, at least for me, that is the first question I ask, right? If somebody comes to me and sell me their wonderful technology, right? They go through all the benefits and say, okay, well, tell me when you suck, because that is what I'm interested. And if you say they're perfect, absolutely for mm, everything, then there is, uh, that's obviously not reality, right? I will know what they're trying to mislead me. So yes, when I speak about the Cassandra, right, as I mentioned, uh, that is uh, the technology which you can run across multiple data centers, right? But, and uh, really be very successful with writing in a multiple data center, data being automatically reconciled for you and so on and so forth. But that means you have to work with a much more complicated data environment with eventual consistency, right? It's much easier for developers to say, hey, you know what, my data is, is simply consistent. I read the data, the millisecond rate, I, I write the data, so right, and then millisecond later, I read the data and I have that correct value out there. It's much more complicated to reconcile saying, well, you know, I have a modification out there, but it may not make it to some other, you know, data center location over time, right? And then it also goes into the flexibility of schema and so on and so forth. Now, I think to what you uh, want to make the sense, right, is my advice to developers would be to really not have that uh, gigantomania, right, if you will. Right. I mean, I see so many people uh, uh, listening to those, let's say, talks about how Facebook built their environment and saying, oh, that is exactly what to do. And I want to say, no, no, that is exactly what you shouldn't do. Because, you know, it took them many years and a billions of dollars of investment to get to that, uh, to that infrastructure. Right. If you want to start, then, <laughs> then you want to probably to start looking at what you know, Facebook has been doing when they started, but just map it at the, you know, new technology landscape. And this is focus on simplicity and productivity, first and foremost. It sounds like there's a spectrum of flexibility in the technology, in a sense. You talked about document stores mm -hmm. and how they give you flexibility in terms of the schema definition. And then maybe relational databases would be, I think, somewhere in the middle because they don't necessarily require you to know your access pattern in advance. You can do things like define secondary indexes later. Whereas I think a technology like Cassandra requires you to know, in a sense, your access pattern and design your keys that you're going to use to access that data in advance before you start putting data into the database. So that would put it even further to the side of the spectrum where you need to plan. That's right. Now, right, right. You need to plan uh, a lot more with uh, with Cassandra 
document database such as MongoDB, they also support secondary indexes, right? But uh, they do uh, have a relatively limited uh, support for the power of things like joins and subqueries, what you can do very easily, right, with, with, uh, with SQL. Right. And when we spoke about this productivity, right, I think what is very important to know here is what the productivity is also very much in the eye of beholder, right? Because I find a lot of developers which uh, know SQL pretty well, right? And they say, hey, you know what? I can get so productive with SQL fast. At the same time, if you have uh, the other developers which uh, has uh, been, uh, you know, bred on, you know, JavaScript, right? And they haven't are not familiar with SQL and the relational data model for them, it is weird, it's, you know, inconvenient, and it's hard for them to be productive at fast. Is relational underrated in the current environment? It seems to be getting a bad rap. You know, this is kind of uh, interesting, right? I believe in you, every new generation, right? In uh, And I think in our development engineering environment, uh, generations are, uh, you know, every think about like five years, right? Not 20 years old, right? Uh, they want to do something new, right? They want to invest something new and exciting, right? And uh, relational databases, they have that wrap of something something old. But even more, I think the problem with uh, relational database, what they had that reputation of being being not scalable, right? Because if you look at the, uh, at the first generation of the scalable systems, Right, would be as Cassandra or as MongoDB, there you have to give up a lot of your relational database properties, right, uh, including like uh, you know ACID consistency, you know, and so on and so forth, to achieve that kind of scalability to you know hundreds, many thousands of nodes, right, and. Uh, for the uh, new generation, then you say, hey, you know what? We do not want to change technology or rethink technology if we uh, really have to scale to hundreds uh, of uh, database nodes. Those technologies, right, are very attractive to them, right? Now, this is changing, and you may have heard a term called new SQL, right? That is how the databases which are as featureful as uh, your conventional relational database, uh, right? But which are as scalable as a database as MongoDB or Cassandra, right? That is what that name typically implies, right? And I think that is uh, what is going on more uh, recently on the market, right? And I think that's why uh, relational databases actually often get in the second look. Okay, but does that apply to Postgres and MySQL, or maybe things in the top 10, or is this something that's still kind of on the horizon? No, well, uh, kind of yes and no, right? So if you look at uh, bare bones, MySQL, or Postgres, these are single node database systems, right? They're designed to run a database on the single server. You can often scale your reads by using uh, replication, right? You can also deploy manual sharding, like pretty much every large-scale MySQL user, as Facebook, right, has done, uh, right? But the, it's kind of, uh, it's painful, right? Uh, at, at the same time, we have the technologies which protocol compatible coming up, right? So, for example, uh, you may have heard about CockroachDB, which is MySQL, uh, sorry, PostgreSQL protocol compatible database, which is uh, scalable, 
across larger number of nodes. There is also TiDB database, which is MySQL protocol compatible, right? And also open source, but which is also scalable. Also in both technologies, there are some add-ons, right? You can think about them as a high level, maybe some sort of proxy, uh, which makes them highly scalable. So for example, for Postgres, there was technology called like Citus from Citus data, which would allow you to, to scale PostgreSQL conveniently. And that actually was acquired by Microsoft just a couple, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, right? As I think a, a validation of that technology success and traction. For MySQL, we have technology called VTES, which is something which was born in YouTube, uh, in Google, and now deployed also by, uh, you know, number of successful companies such as uh, such as Slack and uh, I think uh, oh I forget Stripe or Square or one of those uh, one of those two uh, right which also really give you uh, their properties of no SQL database uh, while uh, having your foundational storage level as MySQL or Postgres. DigitalOcean is the easiest cloud platform to deploy, manage, and scale applications of any size, removing infrastructure friction and providing predictability so developers and their teams can deploy faster and focus on building software the customers love. DigitalOcean stands out from the crowd due to its simplicity, high performance, and no billing surprises. Join a community of over 3.5 million developers on DigitalOcean. Sign up with a free $100 infrastructure credit at do.co slash seradio. It sounds like these technologies, these add-on technologies, as you describe them, have something to do with operations. But then you've also talked about different storage engines, which are compatible with, for instance, MySQL. I might be able to replace the default storage engine with something that's based on log-structured merge tree, I think you mentioned. So is... Are these two different things? Are they the same thing? Could, could you please explain that? Yeah, I mean, uh, these are uh, different things that we are talking about. So what I talk about with Chardon, uh, one of the great things uh, or great challenges for, for, for scaling your single server database to a multiple server is something which is called Chardon, right? And which is really bane of development uh, developers' existence. Because what that means now, instead of just... Uh, uh, you know, connecting to a single database and running your query, which can join as many tables as uh, as you like, and so on. So, if you have to somehow manually go to multiple databases, fetch the data which is stored on them, and then somehow integrate that in your application, right? That is what the manual sharding is at, at, at its worst, right? And if you look at the technologies what I mentioned, such as Vitas, they can say, hey, you don't have to do that. We provide this top layer, which does that all for you. You just run your query as it's conventional, and we spread it across the multiple nodes, retrieve the result set, merge them, do whatever uh, uh, for you, as well as handle uh, what you mentioned as operational pains, right? which also does exist in, the, uh, in those large-scale uh, uh, large environments. Right. Now, uh, the second question, what you mentioned about, okay, the storage engine, right? Uh, especially in the MySQL case, uh, uh, we do uh, have uh, uh, multiple uh, storage engines which have different properties 
and which are uh, responsible how your data is being stored and processed. Right? The most popular MySQL storage engine is called uh, InnoDB, and that is uh, a you know, pretty conventional storage engine. In fact, somebody who implemented that uh, years ago really looked at uh, what Oracle does, uh, right, and pretty much implemented a lot of similar ideas in the open source, uh, open source environment. Now, uh, the other storage engine which is available for MySQL is called uh, MyRox. Uh, it's based on RoxDB, which is a technology which uh, was created in uh, in Facebook where they wanted uh, the storage engine which is more efficient for their workloads, right? And that is something which you can use with MySQL, right, and get the better performance, right, or in many cases uh, reduce the costs by choosing that, uh, that storage engine. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, it is based on uh, uh, log-structured merge trees instead of B-trees, which... Uh, in a DB is based on, and uh, uh, log structured merge trees they uh, handle writes, especially inserts, much more uh, much more efficiently than uh, uh, than in in a DB and other B three based storage engines. Okay, so it sounds like a combination of factors that go into well. There are a few different parameters it seems like that are that are moving. One is you said these add-on technologies that make both operations but also development easier because I don't have to think about a lot of the under underlying issues of manual sharding, targeting a specific node, but then also there are these other decisions. So <laughs> it I'm not sure we're getting closer to a, a understanding of how to choose the database. I'm, I'm almost getting more confused. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that is a, mm, uh, that's right, that's right. Well, uh, look, I mean, uh, I think you go deeper and deeper, right? And this is like, you know, peeling an onion, as a Shrek would say, right? I mean, uh, you see just more layers and layers uh, out there. Now, now, the good thing in this case, right, what a lot of those problems they really happen at uh, at large scale, right? And that is, I think, what is very imp important to understand is what uh, the the questions you need to answer on the, on the small scale and the large scale, right? Very entirely entirely different, right? So, for example, if you are not operating on the Facebook scale, you can use a standard built-in InnoDB storage engine, and you will be just absolutely fine. That's probably even even better choice for you because, uh, as I mentioned, you want to stay uh, with the crowds, right? And InnoDB is by far the more popular storage engine than uh, than MyRox, right? Uh, in this case, so uh, so yes, I mean, if you go go back and say, well, I am developer, right? I am trying maybe starting uh, my new startup. Maybe I'm trying to build an application right in my current company, and I want to see. Uh, uh, look at the databases. What uh, what you want to choose, right? In uh, this case, I would uh, start a question. If you have your own any preference, right? If you are familiar with that uh, database and have a preference, that is a very good shortcut. And in this case, I would evaluate wherever your database of choice is uh, is reasonable for the application you are trying to trying to build. Right, because for example, if you are, you know, building the uh, 
uh, application for you know banking or e-commerce right and your database technology doesn't uh, you which you're comfortable with doesn't support ac transactions well maybe you need to go ahead and you know uh, learn the new technology right that would be my first uh, initial initial step right and uh, and as the time goes right what often happens in this case if you look at as technology de- uh, develops in many cases you start with single technology but then you chop certain p- things away and introduce some more technologies to the mix as you even certain features of your complexity becomes more complicated or if uh, if it just become much more uh, you know you, you need much more scale okay this gets to the topic of polyglot persistence. So we would, at a certain level of scale, we'll take the hit of adding some additional complexity by adding a new database technology to the system. How do you approach that? How do you approach that uh, problem? Do you, what do you recommend for people to do? How do you know when it's time to add a new technology versus try some more advanced techniques to get your existing technology to, to scale? Well, I think that is a very, uh, that is a very good question, uh, right? So I think the first question I would uh, ask, right, to, uh, and often that is uh, sort of like a management uh, is to ask that question is, okay, what is the reason that new technology is being introduced? Because in many cases, what I see the reason is, hey, I want to play the cute toys, cool toys, right? Or, hey, I want to get this mm, technology. It will uh, look good at my resume, right? Uh, rather than actual, you know, great technical reasons to mm, uh, to do that. And look, and that may be okay, right? Maybe as a choice, you can say, well, you know what? I want to retain that top talent I have, and I have to give them toys to play sometime, right? But then you also have to understand uh, the risks of uh, such a decision. And... Uh, let me tell you the story uh, about this topic. So I remember a few years ago, I was visiting a customer and we were talking about some log storage. And we thought, well, you know what? Uh, we store logs in MySQL, but everybody knows MySQL is a bad technology for storing logs. There is this Cassandra technology, which you know is based on LSM trees, which are uh, right uh, optimized, right? Okay, well, uh, I would ask him, okay, how much log files do you store. I would think maybe that's a terabyte or more. He'll say, well, you know, that's, that's about 10,000 lines a day. Well, I would tell him what at this point, 10,000 times a day, it doesn't really matter, right? You can store it in MySQL. You can store them, uh, you know, in, in Cassandra, right? You can even store them in the flat files and grab them. It will still, from performance standpoint, would not really matter. So then, you know, as it happens with consultant, right, you just give you advice and leave. And I visit them again, maybe kind of six months later, and we look at some performance problem. And I was asking, okay, can I take a look at your logs? And they would look at me and say, well, we actually have a problem. Uh, we store the logs in Cassandra, and that guy who managed that Cassandra, he recently left. And we don't have anybody else with Cassandra experience, so we don't really know how to get him out, right? So <laughs> this case is, a, of course, maybe kind of trivial, but that gives a good idea is as you introduce more technologies to a mix, you have to make sure you have either somebody in the team or a vendor relationship so you can mantail them on the scale that you need to do, right? 
which does introduce uh, more complexity, uh, you know, more cost in your environment as well. That's great. Uh, that gets into questions that are, I think, less obvious things to consider. Yeah. Let me actually say something else right about this case. So I want to also uh, say at the same time, you should not do things which are, you know, stupid or ugly, right? I remember at uh, at some time we would do such a, you know, crazy stuff with MySQL to try to make it uh, full text search work, right? For example, which doesn't scale well at all, right? It is much better choice in this case to say, hey, you know what? This technology just doesn't fit. Let us go ahead and use Elastic. Right, and in uh, many cases, uh, the challenge in this case can be what uh, your current vendor or your team may be resistant to introducing uh, some of those additional techno uh, technology. Right, in this case, for you know, all kind of uh, kind of reasons. Right, and this I think is very important for the managers. Right, to look and say, well, you know what, that doesn't smell right. That is it really looks like they're using the hammer to get their the screws into a wall. Right, and while we may make it happen if we hit really, really hard, right? That doesn't look right to me, right? And then in the, that is a very good reason to consider other technologies to use. Are there situations where you want to also simplify the system and reduce technology? Because clearly there's a cost, as you mentioned, to, to having expertise and then also operational costs. Y yes, of course. In the... Uh, you don't want to use too many uh, uh, too many technologies, right? Uh, in this case, much more than your uh, application uh, requires. And and in some cases, uh, you may want want to reduce their number. And here, I think a couple of interesting trends which are going on, right? Like I think uh, their multimodal databases. That is, I think, one fair important play to say, hey, you know what? Uh, instead of having that complexity of uh, all uh, virus technologies just use one technology which does it uh, uh, does it all for you it's it's yet to see right from my standpoint how many people who already adopted a variety of technologies which move to this approach but I think that is a very appealing for people who know they have a variable uh, data model needs right and they would want to standardize on one technology instead of uh, instead of many. Uh, but there is another interesting trend going on, which is about technologies learning from each other and kind of copying each other, people, uh, each other features in some extent. So let me give you an example. Uh, in uh, MySQL, there is a doc store interface now available, which allows you to pretty much have MongoDB-like experience in terms of storing your data and in terms of uh, uh, in terms of retrieving it uh, right from a server at the same time if you look at uh, mongodb for the years they have introduced something similar to the join right to be able to uh, have uh, at least some basic support right for uh, sql like queries in terms of cassandra they have a language which is called cql right which uh, is uh, not the same, but some that's similar to a SQL uh, language, right? Which uh, is uh, the core of your productivity of relational databases, right? So that is uh, also a trend which is happening. Well, and well, of course, Postgres, right? Postgres they also have a lot of features uh, added over the last years in terms of uh, a JSON store, 
right? Storing the JSON documents, uh, processing, retrieving them uh, effectively. Okay, what does this tell us in terms of how to make our decision? Does it mean that the, the choice doesn't matter as much because we can go in a sense from, you know, since the features are blending together as MySQL adopts some MongoDB-like features, or or what does it what does it tell you? Well, from from my standpoint, uh, I think the the, diff, the choice still matters, right? Because uh, while uh, there is a certain exchange of features, right, or the you know cross pollination, right, I think is a good word to use here happens. It is still far from complete. Right, for example, I mentioned SQL, right, with Cassandra's uh, language. It's it's good enough for some basic SQL-like features, but that's nowhere as powerful as a full-blown SQL implementation. Obviously, we talk about the MySQL being a dog store. Yes, it uh, it has uh, allows you to use MySQL in some simple applications, but it has not as a broad support in the drivers and the frameworks, right? Or it also doesn't have the same scalability MongoDB MongoDB offers. Right. Uh, what I say in this case is what uh, uh, there is work going on in the open source ecosystem uh, and beyond is uh, to to simplify the, those choices. Right. Like uh, you mentioned the paper of uh, uh, Michael Stonebreaker. Right. Uh, in terms of the one database fits all era is over. And indeed, over the last decade, we had a huge number of. Uh, open source uh, databases and not just open source, special purpose databases in general created. But this kind of has a pendulum. It goes back and forth, right? Now we are looking at that and say, wow, there are so much variety. There is so much choices. Wouldn't it be fantastic if, if my database could do a lot of it, if not all, so I don't have to run so many technologies, right? And there is a lot of movement in that direction. Software Engineering Radio, episode 199, Michael Stonebreaker, he breaks it into three parts, OLTP, which is kind of a, what relational database technology targets, data warehousing, which I think people can think of as when you have lots and lots of data and you want to run analytics on the data. And then he puts these uh, NoSQL technologies and pretty much everything else into like a third category. And his prediction was that eventually a lot of the NoSQL people will be moving more towards having SQL-like features, whether that's high-level language for accessing the data, whether that's retrofitting some type of transaction capability, and essentially that the people, developers, wanted those features. Is that something that, that you've seen? I agree in terms of you know, cross-pollination, which, uh, which is happening. Uh, right, and uh, uh, in many cases, I would say though, from NoSQL engines, uh, we are seeing what the SQL-like features are being added, but they are not not being replaced. And a lot of that has to deal with the engagement with developers. Right now, if you would take a look at that developer writing the code, for example, uh, in uh, in in JavaScript, right, or Python. And if you would see uh, them accessing MongoDB versus MySQL or Postgres, is MongoDB looks so natural, right? In this case, you really pretty much see that as an extension of your language. You access it almost like you would uh, access your own local data structure, right? 
compared with uh, uh, with SQL, you actually have to write, you know, SQL query, right? If you're not relying on ORM framework, which is going to do that uh, uh, that for you, right? And I don't think they're going to just give it up, right? Because that is so powerful, so convenient for simple applications. But at the same time, for complicated data retri uh, retrieval needs, the SQL and SQL derivatives proved itself to be a very powerful language. Okay, so it, it gets back to where you are in the development lifecycle and what your needs are in terms of scalability. Uh, that's right. Now, and uh, let me say something else, right? If you look at this kind of big choice, which often happens, doc store, right, the, or document model versus relational model. Uh, I think a couple of things which are mm, important here. In many cases, when you look uh, at the document uh, store, it's also often called schemaless, right? And that is often what developers love because that means I don't have to think in advance what columns I'm going to have, right? Or even more complicated structure, what kind of you know joints I have to write, right? I can just evolve my schema as I like. I'm writing the code. I can say, oh, I want to uh, store the size here, right? Boom, added the uh, attribute uh, to my data structure and here it goes into the database, right? Now, and that is very good for productivity of today, right? At the same time, in reality, there is always schema, right? It just, it may not be in the database, it may be in your application. And as the time goes, many developers find what maintaining the schema in your application is actually pretty painful. Right. If over here you have, uh, you know, the, uh, created 40 different variants of that schema, and you have all the different objects with all those data structures stored in the database, it is very hard and painful to reliably process all of that in your application. Right. And that is when people say, well, you know what? That is good. We had a, re a restriction of that relational database, which kept us uh, uh, more disciplined. Right. So what is happening here from one standpoint uh, is the NoSQL databases, they target that pro problem, of course. In recent MongoDB versions, you would have the ability to validate your documents has been added exactly to uh, reduce that you know, free-for-all approach to, right? Uh, in this case. But then from the other side, you also may, uh, uh, may see some of the questions, okay, how do uh, the question what there may be there is value in more thought out schema design which relational database enforces where you may lose of those kind of a first day productivity somewhat but then you uh, reduce your pain over a long period of time what exactly is the trade off then is it is it simply that when i'm using a relational database with a, a schema i'm thinking about schema evolution and schema migration more in, in advance, or is there really like some other cost or benefit involved? Yes, there is another, I think, an important cost and benefit in this case. And I think uh, that is the question. If you think about your schema, is that schema which is shared by the multiple of applications, or is it belongs to, uh, to the single application, right? And let me give you maybe an example. So imagine you have their mobile game. Right, and you have a characters. Those characters have probably a lot of properties, right? Maybe have you know some 
items in their backpack and so on and so forth, right? But what is the interesting thing about this uh, data? It's only interpreted and processed by the single application. In this case, the dog store is absolutely fantastic because I can use any kind of complexity for my, for example, character or whatever object, right? Uh, and then I can very conveniently store and retrieve that from a database. Now, let's say compare that to your e-commerce application. Then I may have, uh, uh, let's say, some sort of, uh, you know, orders database, right? Like a kind of classical relationship example, which uh, uh, from uh, which may be used by a lot of different applications, right? One application forward uh, for uh, forward facing to users when they're buying this stuff, and there is another application which manages delivery of those things, and there is a third one which uses the same database, which shows the managers which goods are being sold well and which are not, right? In this case, the relational database is often much more uh, more convenient, uh, right? Because that uh, saves us from uh, having to manage the schema evolution in all three different uh, different applications. Is it because the schema evolution is something that's structural in the database versus something that's just logical in the application layer? That's right, yes. Because in this case, if I just simply have that game and I uh, change one piece of code which says, hey, now I added a couple of more, more things here, a couple of more properties, and, and that's it, right? It stores a new object, it's uh, uh, in a new format, it's processed the objects in the old and new format, that's easy. If I have five applications, right, and uh, then I have to teach every single of those five applications now to deal with objects of a different kinds of a different structure, right? Which is uh, complicated, but even more so it is error prone, right? Remember database is something which is often very critical for your, for your business, right? In this case, and some uh, mistakes, uh, right? May cost you uh, many thousands or even, uh, you know, millions and more, more dollars, right? Uh, in this case. So the, you often very, uh, for certain applications, you've very, very much about database working correctly, or actually application working correctly with database. How do I evaluate when a database is mature enough to be used in a critical system? Again, uh, I would repeat the same thing I said before, right? There is a safety in numbers at large extent, right? I mean, if you know a lot of people have used that database already, Right in uh, in the similar circumstances, that increases the probability, right, what uh, you would be successful as well, or if you run into the troubles, you would be able to uh, to resolve them, right. But at the same time, of course, if that's would be the case, right, then uh, uh, no new databases would come to a picture, right, in this case, and uh, uh, t- and uh, and that shows us another path. In many cases, where early adopters, uh, uh, they start to deploy those new databases. Sometimes uh, they are uh, smart, right? And they deploy them in less uh, business critical environments where mistakes are okay, right? And, uh, you know, downtime doesn't cost uh, a lot of money or people lives, uh, right? And then those databases can get polished sometimes. You know, that's not the case, right? And we can see somebody doing getting reckless decisions, getting the databases in in environment which is not uh, it's not ready for right in this case. I mean, I mean my approach uh, would be to be uh, practical here, but also do not rely just 
on other people's experience. Often what I found, it would be a surprising discovery what certain things which worked for other people do not work for you because you're doing certain things differently and, you know, somehow nobody did it exactly the same way, right? Which can cause bugs or performance problems and and uh, so on and so forth, right? So the best tool, in my opinion, is at least uh, doing some sort of a proof of concept with a database technology which you think may be good, uh, good fit, right? And to get a feel how it, uh, it actually does what is important for you. For some people, things like scalability is important when you want to test that or, uh, or efficiency, test that as well. In some cases, it may be, for example, language support. Right. If you specifically look at the relational databases, SQL is uh, so powerful, so variable, and no two SQL, uh, no two uh, relational databases support SQL language in exactly the same way. Right. So you may want to test uh, uh, what it has uh, their SQL language features you would like uh, uh, you would like to. Right now, I think what has also becomes increasingly important is non-technical properties, uh, right? Especially in the enterprise space, which uh, is uh, asking questions about, well, what about the vendor uh, viability, right? Because hey, we know some of the open source database companies like uh, you know RethinkDB or Basha, which uh, was company behind technology called React you know, went under, right? And you don't want to, to be stuck in situation where your uh, technology has, you know, no more uh, commercial support, right? So think about that. Or some other, I would say, operational aspects. Do we have uh, the dating address encryption, right? Or auditing functionality, which may be required uh, at the, by the compliance departments in the enterprises for that technology to be able to be used. This gets into another area that you've talked about and could be important in the decision, and that's the licensing. So we've already said that there are reasons to prefer open source databases, but there's some also some nuances around the particular type of open source license. Could, could you talk about that? Sure. And I think we look at the very interesting time when it comes to uh, licenses in the open source space, right? I mean, if you look at the traditional open source licenses, they could be put in relatively two buckets, which are most commonly used, right? These would be called uh, permissive licenses and uh, copyleft licenses, right? Permissive license pretty much means you can take a software and, you know, customize it. And uh, you know maybe to, you know release a commercial version of that if you uh, if you like, and that's uh, their license beyond uh, oh, behind the technologies such as uh, uh, such as Postgres, right? Or uh, you know uh, Apache license. How uh, a lot of technologies such as uh, you know Hadoop would uh, be licensed, right? The other set of technologies uh, or the other type of the other type of license is the copyleft. Uh, that pretty much means uh, if you are taken uh, using this software, then you have to also uh, stick to the software you release with it to be open source as well, right? The, and uh, the most notable examples in this case are the MySQL, which uses GPL license, and MongoDB, which until uh, recently used a GPL license, right? Which are both uh, 
so-called uh, um, the copyleft uh, licenses, right? And uh, why would vendor choose one or another license? If you think about your permissive license, then that really is the best for adoption. Because then that means a lot of users, but also other commercial vendors can take your technology and do whatever you want with it, and hence uh, uh, drive an adoption, right? But that helps, uh, that have a downside of uh, having more fragmentation potentially, and also from the uh, vendor behind technology to be able to, to monetize it, uh, uh, right? Which is very important, of course, with a lot of uh, venture funded modern open source uh, or, or companies, right? Or companies behind the open source uh, technology. Now, here is the challenge. These things, such as uh, simply having a copyleft uh, license, worked well in the times when a software was distributed, right? On compact disks, right? Or whatever. Now, in the age of the cloud, that is not, uh, uh, not good enough. Right. For example, MySQL has GPL license, but at the same time, the company which probably makes the most money on MySQL right now, it's not Oracle who owns MySQL, it's, uh, it's Amazon, who has a very popular Amazon Andreas and Aurora services. And they're able to do that even though their MySQL is GPL licensed because they are not really distributing software. Right? They're just running modified version of that software themselves. So they can do that according to the GPL, uh, GPL license, right? And that brings us uh, that's to the next uh, interesting uh, evolution, right? The uh, number of those uh, venture-funded companies, open-source companies, you can say, hey, you know what? We do not want cloud vendors such as Amazon competing with us. Uh, we want to do something about that. Right, and uh, that do something is typically not in line with the spirit of an open source license, but that is in line of uh, them defending their own commercial interests. Right. So what happened in this case is the company uh, Redis they uh, added uh, uh, what's called the Commons clause, which would be better described is I want to make all the money clause to the Apache license. Right, uh, distributing some of the Redis models. MongoDB, they license MongoDB in the uh, in the SSPL license. You also see Confluent, uh, they uh, change the license for certain parts of the uh, of a Kafka platform. Uh, right. So uh, I think that is a very uh, that is a very interesting trend. How the open source evolving from you know just open source, but where that is permissive license or copyleft to wherever that is to kind of more shades of gray, right? If you will, there are some software which will be truly open source and other will be, hey, we give you access to the source code, but there are lots some restrictions about how you can use or modify that, uh, uh, that software. And obviously from your standpoint, right? If you want to avoid vendor locking, you want maximum freedom. Right? You want maximum freedom to be able to, to support and change that software yourself, if you like. You want to hire different vendors, right? In this case, if you don't want to hire it in-house and not to be bound just by, uh, to a single technology vendor for, uh, for support uh, and, uh, and other services, right? And in this case, that's why I would encourage everybody to understand if you are really dealing with open source or with something which is called uh, open source, but it's 
not really in the spirit of an open source software. What's a situation you've seen or that you predict would be a problem caused by these changes to the licensing? So like I'm thinking about the specific impacts or, or problems that you've seen. Well, it's interesting, right? A lot of those things happen very recently, right? So when I mentioned Redis, Confluence, uh, MongoDB, all those of it happened in the last uh, six months in, in the year of 2018, right? And if you uh, look at the open source software adoption trends, and that's where most of the impact is likely to be, it often takes months and years to really, to really materialize. What we can say, I think, about the SSPL, uh, right, MongoDB's new license, we can see is what uh, number of entities such as Fedora projects or Debian, they already judge what they do not consider that as an open source license. And uh, due to those reasons, uh, the uh, MongoDB is being removed from Debian, right, from Fedora and from next version of Red Hat, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, right? Is that going to be immediately causing some loss of a user mindshare or adoption? You know, probably not. Over time of uh, uh, years, it's, uh, it may be. Now, what that also made uh, is, uh, while it's may prevented Amazon, right, which is obviously a big, you know, cloud boogeyman for uh, many open source vendors, it prevented them from releasing MongoDB as a service. But uh, guess what they did? They released uh, the MongoDB compatible database, uh, right, uh, as a service still. Uh, and uh, now we are just getting the fragmentation that happened in, uh, in MongoDB space. And of course, right now, this technology is rather simple. It doesn't have all features for MongoDB, but Amazon has a lot of resources and they show that they can uh, really do a great engineering effort. And, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, the, in a few years, that may be a very uh, mature technology and uh, pulling both the uh, mind share from MongoDB as well as a, uh, as a business. So that's what we see now, but uh, you know what? <laughs> we don't, I don't know how that's going to play out. We're almost out of time. So I wanted to give you opportunity to talk about anything else, any other important topics that we didn't cover. Yeah, uh, I want to go back to the topic we discussed in the start of this conversation, right? And I think that was uh, a very interesting topic, right? About how does cloud impacts the open source, right? And what you can see, of course, uh, in this case, that there is this there is important impact, right? Where we see a number of users which would traditionally use open source software, they're not quite using open source, they're using uh, open source compatible cloud versions because of convenience. And that's what uh, uh, they care about first and foremost, right? And uh, I think this is, uh, from one extent, is a worrying trend, but from the other uh, extent, uh, extent, I think that is something where we will see some changes in the coming years, right? Like, well, if you remember, right, or maybe read about the mid-90s, right, when internet was, uh, uh, was born, actually, open source was still out there, but tools like open source operating system Linux, MySQL, and so on, so there were not really good enough, right, in this case. Uh, Sun, uh, uh, Oracle, 
they're much better, they're much more mature, right? And that's what people use. But then open source technologies, they caught up, right, over time. It's just what uh, they take uh, time to happen. And I see what uh, a lot of uh, similar things happening in the in the cloud now uh, as well, right? We are seeing the, uh, a lot of companies coming together, especially behind the Kubernetes effort, right? Which really uh, allows us to write the applications for the cloud conveniently, right? Not just for a single, uh, single node. And that really allows uh, to create the new generation of applications which are easy to use, same as Amazon RES, right, or MongoDB Atlas, but which are completely open source, right? And we're just seeing the first time, there's the first generation of those applications coming up. They're not as mature, but I would expect within, you know, next three to five years, we'll have the new generation of those cloud-native open source applications which can give uh, quite a bit of competition to those cloud uh, cloud vendors, platforms, right, which require lock-in. So what's the takeaway for someone who's creating a new application? Are you, are you saying that it's they should just use the cloud-provided solution for now and keep their eye on these new technologies, or is it really critical for them to avoid lock-in? Well, I think uh, the question in this case is, uh, uh, as usually, it, it depends, right? Because if you are uh, writing a relatively small application, in this case, that is, using the cloud is a very practical way for you to do. You know, use what works best now, right? For, right. Be practical. Now, if you are the uh, enterprise, right, which has a, you know, 10 years planning horizon and which uh, really wants to commit for technologies or for a long term, I know many of those technology uh, companies are now uh, investing massively in a Kubernetes effort and try to move as many technologies to that technology as possible because, you know what, they already have seen their Amazon cloud bills and they know those are not pretty, right, or other cloud providers, right? And they want to make sure they maintain and enhance their negotiating power and ability to move their workloads between the clouds. Great. Um, glad we covered that. Peter, how can listeners find out more about what you're doing, follow you, and find out more about Percona? Oh, well, uh, yes, you can find us uh, at uh, com, of course. Uh, uh, right, uh, we have a blog uh, which has a lot of wonderful technical information. You can also follow me personally on Twitter, which you probably just include in the links for the podcast. Yeah, that's right. I'll uh, include a link to your Twitter and blog in the show notes. Okay, thank you. Thanks for being on the show, Peter. For Software Engineering Radio, this has been Nate Black. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.